Hi, this is Sean Smallman. Welcome to Dispatch 7. Today, I'll be talking to Elaine Maisner, my editor at the University of North Carolina Press. I've worked with Elaine on three different book projects, and so there's no one that I would trust more for advice. Today, we're going to talk about her advice for new authors. I'm really glad to have her join me on the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, coming on to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you become an editor? Uh, you know, sometimes at meetings with my colleagues who are other editors, we'll sit down and ask each other how we became editors. And it's always like hilarious because there's so many different paths to becoming an editor. There's no, it's one of those professions where there's no absolute uh, training. But I would say that I've always loved. I think this is true for all of us. uh, Reading and writing, in a sense, has always been like breathing for most of us. Um, We took to it very early. And I remember that when I was in middle school, we had to do a careers unit. And I chose uh, the profession of being an author, a writer. Uh, So in a a way, I have ended up... um, on the other side, being an editor where I work with people who are writers, and that's been extremely satisfying. So I gravitated toward publishing jobs, and you get an entry-level job for most of us. And you, if you like it and you have a facility for it, you learn and move up through the ranks as you go. In scholarly publishing, there are a few people who have graduate degrees in the areas, and, and we editors in, in academic university presses. There are about 110 university presses in our in the U.S. right now. Um, we usually have areas of specialization that we've developed from various ways over the years, but it is not required in any way that you have a PhD in that area or even a master's. More like, and some people certainly do, and that's great, but It's more like you have a PhD in publishing, so to speak, and you learn that as you go. We become very, very familiar with the fields that we work in, um, but we're not PhDs. So in a way, we're we're able to read a lot of manuscripts and materials, and we learn what important questions there are in the field. That's our job. You know, we need to find out what's going on in the field, what's important. Sometimes we help shape the field by understanding that there are questions out there that no one's written about yet, but we rely on the experts to do the real vetting. And and in academic publishing or scholarly publishing or university press publishing, peer review is one of the most important, um, you know, distinctions of, of the way we publish. So we can come back to peer review, but that's what makes us university presses. So I, I guess I kind of combined a lot of things into that answer. That was great. And can you actually say maybe a little bit about peer review and what that is? Because not everybody who's listening to this will know what peer review is. Sure. Um, Well, for journal publishing, if you're writing an article, if you're an academic, you're working inside an academy. In other words, you're you're supposed to be an expert. And you, Sean, have done um, work in Latin American history. You're a historian. Uh, and you've also done a lot of work in international studies and global studies, obviously. So when you write things, they need to be vetted before they're published. So we send it 
to other experts in the field who are appropriate choices to check your work, you know, and to also comment on what kind of contribute new contribution it's making because publishers don't want to keep publishing the same stuff over and over and over again. But that's also not to say we publish blockbusters every time either. The, the way knowledge is built in history, for example, is, you know, it accretes little by little. Um, you wrote a book about HIV AIDS history in uh, Latin America, you know, and that was published, what, 15 years ago, maybe? And yeah, yeah, about that. And there may be new knowledge out there now on that, how it's treated, you know, how it's detected and all of that. So a new book needs to be written about that, but they would build on your work. So that's the nature of scholarship. And it's also kind of the nature of scientific research. So in a lot of ways, work in the humanities has followed the model of science, the scientific model. And if I could just riff on that for a minute, that's why we have vetters who check the science or in your case, you know, in your case, the history, how you write the history, which is called historiography, writing history. In fact, in Europe, like in France, I think that even the humanities are called scientific institutions, you know, for the writing of history. So there's that model. Um, and in fact, I'm always teasing authors because their books, if it's, you know, a monograph, a, a focused look at one important case in history or some topic, they still start them with introduction and conclusion, which is actually taken from the model of a scientific experiment. So I'm always telling people, don't use the word conclusion. You know, everyone will know it's your last chapter and that you're summing things up. Give it a good, interesting title that actually means something or helps people think about what you found in your book. So that's what peer review is. It's finding peers in your field who um, will be fair and neutral and, you know, try to give a good uh, understanding of what your project is and whether it should be published because editors rely on these peer reviews to decide whether something should be published. But quickly, I want to say it's not the only thing that we rely on. And first of all, most editors who are experienced already do their own review for sure about whether something is, they can, you know, we know by now whether it's valuable, we know if it fits the field, we know if what kind of contribution it'll make. But we're, again, we're not trained um, PhDs, so we definitely need that peer review. And then the reason why it's so important to get that kind of um, vetting, you need to have a good track record in order to be promoted to, say, from an assistant level professor to associate level, and ultimately, hopefully, to get tenure where you are free to work on and publish what you want without um, feeling like you're under the gun all the time which hopefully frees up your mind somewhat. So I wish you had told me that about titling the conclusion uh, uh, something different years ago, because I'm like, that's a really good point. Um, some of the people who are listening to this are probably uh, assistant professors who, you know, they finished their doctorate, they've got a manuscript, they're starting to think about publication. What should authors think about when choosing a press? The most quick way to think about that is what books are you in conversation with or what thinkers, you know, what authors have been important to you in your field 
and um, who published them. So look at the, who the publishers are and make sure that that publisher is conversant with your field. So if you're working in, um, say, sociology, you know, you, you might find a publisher who does fantastic work, but they don't have a list in sociology. So the concept of a list in a field is important. So you should be able to go to their website and punch in sociology and then find books that are really good. And because that means not only does the is will people come to that publisher to look for good work in that area, but it also means that they know how to market it and get word of your book out to the appropriate audiences. So that's the most important thing is to make sure it's a publisher with an active um, and an admirable list in your discipline. Some, dis, you know, we at UNC Press um, were known for publishing books that touch on or draw from many disciplines. You know, we do a, a lot of history, but we also do, do books that say, for example, could be a book about history and religion together. History, not just history of religion, but also um, speak to people who are interested in the theory of religion. So you want to make sure you have a publisher who's open to that kind of, um, tr you know, what would you call it? Tran you know, multidisciplinary sort of approaches if, if your work is like that. Yeah. Right. Uh, so list area is a concept that you should think about. And then know that there may be a few presses that are really known in your area, but that doesn't mean those are the only presses out there. Most university presses publish really good work and um, you need to have, you know, a group in mind and um, it, it's, you know, there, there's, there's this sense that there are a few that are known for your area, but I think you should definitely, people should go deep and think about publishers that they may not have thought of before because there is a lot of, no one publisher can publish everything that comes pouring into their portal. Right. Can you tell us about what an editor likes to see in a book proposal? Sure, sure. Um, and and speaking of, that's a good segue from the previous question because you do want to develop a relationship with an editor and get to know who the editors are in your fields and have preliminary conversations if you can at meetings. Once we start opening up to in-person meetings, you know, conferences <laughs> again. Um, Editors want to hear about the work. You know, we'll know pretty quickly whether something's appropriate or not, but we definitely want to hear from you. So it all, there's so many different kinds of books. You know what I mean? Some bo initial books usually in scholarly publishing are drawn from dissertations, but not always. Uh, there may be a second book, a third book. Um, but the question is, when do you contact an editor and what will you share with them? So a proposal is certainly an important part of the mix. But let me say that if you actually have a full manuscript that you've already finished, you, you could write a shorter proposal than for a manuscript that's not finished because the proposal has to be a picture of what your work is. Now, all publishers have on their websites, and there are lots of books about this, in fact, Princeton University Press just published a brand new book called How to Write a Proposal, okay? Oh. So you definitely want to check that out. They do a number of books about getting published. It's it's um, brand new. I haven't looked at it myself, but I'm sure it's good. But most presses have what 
what you should put in your proposal. Okay. So I can say just very quickly, um, we want to see an overall description of the project. The author, I can't emphasize enough, the author has to do some work on this. A lot of times we get things that are five, 10 pages. This is what my book's about. And it's, it doesn't tell you what the book is about. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've had to press authors, even senior people, to say, you need to be able to describe what your book is about in, say, two paragraphs, what it is, what's new about it, and why it matters. What kind of contribution are you making? You really need to do it. I mean, it's, you could call it an elevator pitch, but it's it's got to be a little more substantial than that. So you want to explain what methodology it is, um, what time period it is, if it covers you know a historical period, why you use that time period, what the overall um, topic is, you know, and 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 then. Um, say this is what I found. And and don't just say this makes an important contribution to understanding gender in um you know medicine in Latin America. That's no, not good enough. You need to say this I argue that or I found that um you know being female or something like that uh tends to give these results in um the way people are treated for certain diseases or whatever i'm just making this up but touch on what it is that you're actually saying because that's what's really interesting and then have a working table of have a table of contents so if it's a shorter what you could say is here's my description here's the table of contents uh, the manuscript is done it's it's these many words i'd like to have 12 illustrations would you like to see the manuscript okay if it's one where you've only say conceived of the project and maybe have an outline table of contents and maybe you have one chapter then you could say then you need to make it a little bit longer and say here's the table of contents this is what's in each chapter this is my timeline this is who my audience is this is who I am here's other works in the field that are related or even competing Hopefully, if you chose your topic well, there aren't any directly competing books, but there always will be related books because, again, that's what scholarship is about. It builds on other work. And if it's a really well-known book, the editor might say, oh, wow, if we can get another book that's like this one, that would be great, you know. So there's very, there's, you know, you can make a simple proposal or a more substantial proposal, but it just depends where you're at. Most important thing is you need to have a vision for your book. You need to know what your book is about. Some people know it at an early stage. Others have finished work and gotten, you know, dissertation passed, but they still aren't quite sure how they want to shape it. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But before you start really trying to present it to somebody else, it'd be great if you have a fairly strong idea of what it is you want to do. It's, there's no problem reaching out to editors early on either. If you're not sure, just say, hey, I'm working on this. Are you interested? And they might be able to give you some feedback, but it's always better if you can be active in the sense that you're setting out the parameters for what you're doing so that you can make the right first impression. Right. What about common mistakes that people make when they're trying to pitch their book? I mean, you've touched on a couple of things, but are there some things that come up a lot? Well, I think it should be a short overall view that includes attention to the method, your sources, 
try to include that and then use that as a stepping off point for what is what your book is actually doing okay and what you've looked at and again what you've what you're arguing i one of my i think one of your questions is pet peeves one of my pet peeves is to you if an author uses the word explore that is often a really squishy word that they're using because they don't know what they've actually found so say i explore you know i'm exploring this or that you can use the word explore in the right context but i think it's better to say i you know studied or i trace or i chronicle or i examine or i investigate this okay and this is what i've this is what i'm arguing this is what i found so try to focus in it's the hard work. I mean, when an editor does one of our skills that we have to have is because we are communicating this work to our team and saying, we need to publish this. And they're not going to say, okay, unless they know what the heck the book is about. So there are many times where an editor will work with an author to, to distill all these things about the book into say a couple of paragraphs. So if you can do the work first, the editor might help you, and usually authors want to be helped with that, but they also, they don't want to have to do all the work. Like, don't you know what you wrote your book about? I mean, maybe I'm coming across as a little bit um, complaining, but it it's for your own good. You need to make the best first impression. So you need to know what you're, what you're finding and arguing. And make sure that it fits. So you'd be surprised at how, how often it happens that an author isn't able to do that. So that's my number one recommendation. Run it off of other people, run it off your advisors, um, whatever, you know, try to try to challenge yourself to be able to put this clearly. And, and again, it's a pro it's an intellectual process of working it out. So you may not be able to do that immediately, but ultimately you want to be able to do that so that you can make sure that every part of your book um, is, is, uh, joining in the effort to make your make the book have an impact. One of the things I appreciate about working with you, and I've, I've worked on with you, I think three books now, um, is I felt that you were always such an advocate. And of course, if I understand the process right, you would have to take this book and it goes to the board and it's a board that makes a final approval. So in a way, it's sort of funny. You work with the author to get them to shape and define their project, but then you have to turn around and, and you're an advocate for the book, right? Absolutely. That's, that's one of the interesting things about being an editor. You're absolutely right. You're, you're, I, what do I say? You're, my job is persuasion. My job is to persuade an author to publish with us. And my job is to persuade my team to publish the book that I think should be published. So I'm not, it's not a battle for most of us who've been editing for a long time. You know, that's why we're, we're paid the huge bucks we're paid because we know what should be published. Um, and we're bringing in the best books we can get to the publisher. And then, you know, a press gets known for, for publishing a great list and blah, blah, blah. Right. So, but still we have to persuade our team in the sense that we say, this is really important. This isn't a repeat of what we've already published. And uh, this is this is the the P and L, the profit and loss budget is going to hold up because university presses are not for profit. We don't have to make money on most of our 
you know, we don't have to make a profit per se on most of the publishing we do. Um, we just have to break even because again, we're not for profit. Um, so we have to be able to show that a book can break even. And that's not as easy as you think uh, in, in today's academic world. The number of um, monographs that are sold has steadily dropped because libraries are forming consortiums where they'll just share one book or an, you know an ebook. I could talk a little bit more about ebooks too and open access publishing. But um, people are not assigning monographs as much as they used to. Yes, and I don't know for sure whether the population of universe undergraduate population has that been dropping. Well, yeah, there's a, a definite demographic mm. decline right now, which um, all kinds of institutions are are wrestling with. But I want to kind of go back to what you were just saying um, about ebooks because that's got to be such a key issue right now. Um, how does that impact the press, and, and what should um, people know, authors know about that? There's, okay, an ebook okay is just a product, so. If- UNC Press, we publish every book we publish is either a print book or an ebook, and you can choose what you want. We don't care. The author gets royalties on them, we get paid for them, and um, that's fine, you know. Um, it's just another way of delivering the book to a customer in the format they prefer. But when you talk about open access publishing, which I, you're probably familiar with. That means that anyone can get the book on the internet without paying for it. Usually it's anchored to your computer. That is, you can't download it uh, or to print it out would be a hassle. And like just buy the book if you want to print it out. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's various reasons why people prefer to read printed material or, right. or online material. But um, that's a different model of publishing. It's very common in the sciences. In the humanities, we're experimenting with it. We have a lot of different experiments going on, but they're not cheaper. One thing I just want to make clear, if we publish open access books, and we do, we have a few really interesting programs. One is called Sustainable History Monographs Publishing. These books are exactly the same in terms of peer review and excellence. They are not a lesser being, okay? And um, it's really important for um, people who at universities who are in charge of tenure decisions and things like that to understand that because um, there's a real demand and sort of a, a social equity argument to be made for open access publishing. Not everyone can afford to buy books. And it's also more available around the world you know, if it's available as an open access book. So there are, there are a lot of reasons why it's a good thing, but a bad reason to um, not go in that direction for a scholar is because, you know, the people who make decisions about their career will say, oh, it's open access. It doesn't count. That's a bad thing. That's a bad reason. So it's all very new. It's completely new. I would be really interested to know whether you've heard discussions about just plain ebooks, which I hope I've explained is is the same as a print book is just available for you to read on a device. Um, and you have to pay for it versus open access, which is you know free. Have you heard your people discuss? What's it? interesting yeah. to me, yeah, 
is just with the textbook, what I've noticed is I thought more people would actually like to get the textbook as an ebook, but I don't think that's happened so much. Some students certainly do, but I think especially there's something about a textbook. People like that physicality. They like to write the notes in the margins. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think about with books is when you're publishing a book, I think we all kind of think about, you know, writing the book, we think about um, pitching the book, and then we don't think so much about what happens afterwards. And one of the things when I published my first book with your press Mm. was I realized how much work goes into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, just the editing process was intense and the reference and the fact checking. Yes. And and the index. And um, it's a craft. So when you think about something like open access, like I know the University, I think of uh, Athabasca has done that. All that work's happening, Mm -hmm. like you're saying, that's Mm -hmm. the same amount of work is going into that book that you would get with a a physical object. Yeah. So it's amazing the amount of effort that just goes into all books. But I also want to ask a question because the other thing that hits you once you've got a book published is you need to promote the book. You need to be engaged with marketing. And that wasn't really something I'd been thinking about, or I I should have, but I wasn't really aware of it when when I published my first book. So can you talk a little bit about how authors should be prepared to promote their books and what they should be thinking about? Okay. Uh, This has changed over time with social media, but another way to choose which publishers, to go back to that, you're interested in is to make sure that you know they go to conferences that are relevant to your book if and that they um, promote the book in catalogs and advertisements and um, social media and so on and so forth. So that's something to look out for. But it really, it, it's amazing how Twitter has become a real scholarly community around certain fields. I'm on Twitter. I watch I, I sometimes get ideas to how, who to contact about a new project, a new something they're working on. Um, it's definitely fruitful that way. And I work in American religious religion, for example, or American religious history. People are online; they're promoting each other's books. They're saying, "Here's a picture of the book I just received from, you know, by Anthea Butler or whatever," and it's great. And it's it's actually really important. People are pretty generous, uh, so I think. Not everyone wants to do Twitter for sure. I've never joined Facebook myself, so I don't know anything about Facebook. But um, it is not a bad thing if you can say, "Hey, my book just got published. Check it out," you know, and then give a link to the, your the pub- publisher's page for your book. At least that much <laughs> um, is is very helpful. And um, the more you know, for regular monographs, we know how many they're going to sell probably under a thousand copies depending on the field, but most monographs are going to sell under a thousand. But for books that we pitch or that we see as a crossover book that could have a non-academic audience as well, uh, the, the more an author can do to help promote their book, the better it is. Now we do trade books too, books that are written from the get-go to be you know, they're based on great scholarship, but they're written in a style and in a manner and with a certain concept that they're going to reach out to non-academic audiences. And the more you do that, the more important it is that the author be able to get out there and, and kind of um, let people know about their work. So if you're working with, say, a commercial publisher, you know, a, a trade company like 
Random House or something, the first thing they're going to do is say, what's this author's platform? What's this person's platform? If they like your book, then they're going to start looking you up on social media. And if you're not there, they'll probably say, gee, unless we can build this into a mystery story about why you're not there, we need you to get on there. (laughs) So it's a partnership. It's a partnership. Giving talks, being on, uh, on panels, at scholarly meetings, you know, the more the author can do, the, the better it is for your book, if that's what you're concerned about. What are a couple of the most interesting projects that you've seen and, and what made them really good? That's a hard question. That's a very hard, not not best, you know, again, it, it depends on what the field is. So I, I think that some of the really interesting books that make a real contribution are books that um, take up issues that are important to people today and that haven't been focused on much, like, say, gender. did a fantastic book on gender and uh, the study of Mormonism, because I do religion as well as Latin American Caribbean studies. So this book looked at what the teachings on gender were uh, in modern Mormonism and produced a book that showed what, the high, you know, the church and the most respected people were writing about gender and, and with some su- very surprising revelations about gender and why gender roles are so important. Because actually, the teaching on gender, again, at the highest levels um, of the church, are that gender can be somewhat fluid. And therefore, we have to guard against that. <laughs> so that that book made a huge splash, you know. So that's an example of a book that is looking at things in a really fresh way, but it's based on scrupul, you know, really scrupulous scholarship. Uh, another example of a book that we just did—I'll um, give you two more examples—is Anthea Butler's White Evangelical Racism, and that's a study of say morality in America. And it's, um, it's a very, it's, it was written to be a trade book from the beginning. She's a professor at university of Pennsylvania. And it's about this, how white evangelical racism, uh, isn't racism is a feature, as she says, not a bug for most white evangelical, most of white evangelical Christianity and how it built its power around that. And how today, it um, embraces it. Well, doesn't embrace it, but how it's part of uh, its political stance and power. So that's another one. You know, your book, uh, Sean, was really, really important because there weren't many people paying that much attention to HIV AIDS when you wrote that book about Latin America. So that's another example of a book that touches on something that's really important, but you, looks at the history of it in a way that's very illuminating. Yeah. And there's so many different books that are great. And the most important thing is for most editors, they really want to love their books because we're going to spend a lot of time with them and the authors over time. Yeah, that's one thing I always appreciate is uh, you just had such a kind of broad knowledge of the literature. It's amazing, you know, how, how much depth you have. But is there anything else that came into your mind that you wanted to say? Well, I think I, I really want to encourage people. I want people to not, if they're looking to publish a book, not give up, okay? I mean, if it's a book, it's, you know, if you're an academic and you're 
you've been working on a project for a long time, you need to be realistic. But if you get turned down by one pu publisher, there's a very good chance that another publisher will take it on because what people don't understand is that a publisher, there may be many great projects, but a publisher needs to find one that's hitting all the factors they need at that moment. So maybe we don't, we, we have so many books in, in say, um, you know, the history of the Cuban revolution, for example. I, I don't know that, that that's true. I don't think it is, but we have a big list in, in Cuba. And, um, but we may be looking for one that's really different from the others, you know, or a book that speaks to a broader audience uh, than a narrow audience. So it doesn't mean the book is bad. You need to go keep looking for other uh, at other publishers and find one that needs your book at that moment. I'll, I'll just close with um, a thought th about that. We need authors as much as the authors need us but we can't take on as many authors as need us, but we do need them. So when I worked at Yale University Press, that was my first university press publishing position. My mentor was an editor. And I remember this was before email, although he was actually the first person I ever saw using email because he was a real pioneer, but he would rush to his inbox. So it was paper mail. My, my office was just outside of his inbox. So I could see him every morning running over to the inbox and eagerly scooping up the letters and tearing them open because he wanted he wanted to see what was coming in it wasn't you know he we oh we know that there's always something cool coming in one one time or another i mean most of them ended up not going anywhere but we're always looking so don't forget that elaine thank you so much i was so grateful that you uh, agreed to join me on the podcast I'm very uh, honored that you asked me. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Dispatch 7. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. And please check back in two weeks for the next episode.